Triple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the premier podcast shining light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello there. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark. I am actually super excited to be bringing you this episode because this episode brings together my two passions, kind of the law and sex and disability. When I was in school, I studied the law for my bachelor's degree and for my master's degree. And when I was doing my bachelor's, I was obsessed, obsessed. I still kind of am obsessed with law and order. And I was obsessed with being a big time lawyer. I really felt like it was a sexy and professional thing to do. And it was like really what I had wanted to do ever since I was young, probably about 15, 16, I really wanted to be in a big time profession like that. And when I watched Law & Order, I was somehow drawn to the, to the kind of, um, what is the word I want? The finality of the court and kind of the, the, the professionalism within that setting. I really wanted to, to do that. And of course, you know, the, Bung Bung of Law and Order was my was the thing that really got, kind of got me into, interested in the law. So I went to school to do law, and of course, I was studying law in a Canadian context. So you immediately don't get the bum bum of Law and Order. You get a really kind of subdued Canadian kind of legal thing, which is not at all how it's done in the states. And so, but I, I, I still, I powered through and I was like, okay, I'm going to do law. This is what I'm going to do. This is my thing. And I was really into the professionalism, the way that it was portrayed on TV. And even when, when I went to a court proceeding back in, I think, first year law. No, not even. It was like, it was like 10th or 11th grade. I went to, to a, a court proceeding and I like fell in love with it. That is all to say, that's what I studied in school. And that's kind of what, where my desire to do this episode came from. And as my, let me just give you some background on that. So I studied in school. I studied law in school. I did my BA and MA in law. And as my studies progressed and changed, I focused on disability and the law, looking at issues around the Americans with Disabilities Act and the provincial equivalent where I live in Ontario, Canada, the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, or the AODA. So I did a bunch of research around that. And what I found when I was doing that work um, was that my interests were progressing more into sexuality and disability and queerness specifically. And my connection to law kind of dimmed a little bit. I still was very interested in the attitudinal factors that connected law and disability, but it wasn't something that my heart wanted to do 
anymore as I kind of came into my queerness and came into these different community issues. I think my experience in, in law, doing my BA and MA there, helped me solidify what I'm doing now. But in truth, my desire to, to look at the law dimmed considerably once I started doing what I was doing. Over the past couple of months and years, there have been stories out there about the law, disability, and sexuality that have kind of reignited my passion for law all over again. And so I thought it would be both interesting and important to take a look at some case studies and some laws on the books and that have been on the books relating to sexuality and disability. I don't know quite why there was a long pause there, but yeah. So I want to look at case studies and laws on and off the books related to sexuality and disability. There really has been quite a long history of how pol of policing how disabled people are seen and sexualized. Starting with the ugly laws, I'm sure it goes back much further, but w but some of the first highly documented cases with respect to disability were the ugly, ugly laws. And if you don't know what the ugly laws are, I'll give you a brief synopsis of what they are. The ugly laws started in the 1880s, and this was a series of laws that prohibited unsightly people from being seen on the streets at all. And this almost exclusively affected disabled people because we that population was the most unsightly at the time, given that we may have different body types and certain, quote, deformities that would make us look unsightly. Um, and people could be arrested and removed from the streets for, for looking a certain way and not looking, not, and looking unsightly when they were in the street. I can't even begin to fathom what that must have been like to know that if you had a disability and a certain body shape or a certain way that you moved or looked because of disability, you would be removed and taken off the streets. It's just mind-boggling that these laws even existed um, and were actively on the books until, disturbingly enough, until 1974. And a bunch of states in, the, in America passed these laws. And we had... A little bit of this in Canada as well, these laws around the ugly laws in Canada, kind of mimicking the fact that anybody who was unsightly in Canada or the U.S. could be arrested based on that. And this, why I, why I worded it as saying this almost exclusively affected disabled people is because of the way our bodies can look sometimes. Um, so I just think it's, kind of gross that th these laws were on the books in the states until 1974 that's only 43 years ago so really what, what what that says is that we haven't i mean we do we we really have trouble seeing disabled people as people um but to say that we don't that we wanted disabled people off the streets because they looked unsightly in 1974 only 43 years ago is crazy. And so you can see from this example how we start policing. And this wasn't, this wasn't relegated to sexuality, to sexuality in these laws, the ugly laws. But we start relegating who is beautiful and who is not. 
in laws like this and we start saying that the disabled body is not beautiful using laws like this and not valid and not worthy of things using laws like this. And that's why I think talking about the, the ugly laws with respect to sexuality and disability is important because it shows it shows a through line of how we consider the disabled body so much so that the disabled body was removed from the streets and arrested because they looked a certain way. And that kind of plays into how we think about sexuality in the disabled body. It's all kind of connected in really kind of disturbing ways. And it, it certainly plays into a lot of the attitudinal barriers that we face as disabled people when we are we, when we are trying to, to navigate sexuality and disability. These, these kind of subconscious beliefs pop up in people's heads and they may not have read about the ugly laws, but these this idea of being with somebody who looks different than me, all these things play into this kind of mindset. And then, of course, we have the eugenics movement. And I want to just give you a brief background on that as part of the origin of eugenics because I, I did some Googling and some research on that. And most of us in the disabled community know a little bit about it, but I want to just give you some background on eugenics and why eugenics is so kind of crucial to the way disabled people were treated. It was started by Sir Francis Galton in 1883. Put simply, eugenics means well-born. Initially, Galton focused on positive eugenics, encouraging healthy, capable people of above-average intelligence to bear more children with the, with the idea of building an improved human race. Right there, we can already see problems. I'm As soon as I read that quote just now, yeah, I can see the issues right away. The, the article that I'm getting this from continues, Some followers of Galton combine emphasis on ancestral traits with Gregor Mendel's research on the patterns of inheritance in an, in an attempt to explain the generational transmission of genetic traits in human beings. Negative eugenics, as developed in the United States and Germany, played on the fears of race degeneration. At a time when the working class poor were reproducing at a greater rate than successful the successful middle and upper class members of society, and I'm quoting this exactly, these ideas garnered considerable interest. One of the most famous proponents of the of eugenics in the United States was President Theodore Roosevelt, who warned that the failure of couples of Anglo-Saxon heritage to produce large families would lead to race suicide. That in itself is super gross. But how it affected disabled people was that Francis Galton said that disabled people should be prohibited from breeding. Actually, what he said was that feeble-minded people should be prohibited from breeding, but he was definitely implying and suggesting that disabled people should not breed. Between 1907 and 1927, thousands of people with disabilities were sterilized and this still happens today. Look at designer babies, genetic testing. I'm reading about a case that happened in Iowa where a mother, the legal guardian of her 20-year-old intellectually disabled son, decided that her son should get a vasectomy and a doctor and had a doctor perform it. The mother contends that Stuart was in favor of the procedure 
and that it had been discussed and agreed upon. The son, however, disputed that he had wanted the vasectomy. The son's lawyer, presumably at the son's request, sued, claiming this violated Iowa state law. The Iowa Supreme Court agreed, interpreting the relevant Iowa statute correctly as requiring court approval for the vasectomy. But it's worth noting that the court accepted that such vasectomy of intellectual disabled people can be approved if a court agrees. I'm, I'm just reading a bunch of cases that echo this, saying that there's so many cases where disabled people have been sterilized at the behest of the state, at the behest of someone else, at the behest of a family member who has taken their autonomy away, and the courts, the courts, in many, many of these cases, agree that the, the, the sterilization was okay. And that's terrifying. That's really scary how quickly... I mean, we do, when, when, I, when I started doing this podcast, I never thought I would be talking about the state and bodily autonomy, but here we are looking at cases where the state says that you, that you, as a disabled person, as an intellectually disabled person, have no rights or have no rights to procreation or have no rights to start a family. And that's really scary that in the 21st century, we're still having this conversation. And this is a conversation that, that, that is still going on within our courts and it shows so much about how we see disabled people in our bodies via the state. I have a lot more to say in this episode around disability, sexuality, and the law, and we're going to do that right after a brief break to play some ads by our sponsors and awesome people who listen to the show. We'll be right back, right here on Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on sex and disability. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hi, my name is Michael Iantorno, and I produce AMI-audio's weekly panel discussion show, Open Dialogue. I also listen to Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. Let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together. Connect with me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A, and use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark. Welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed those ads. I want to again thank our brilliant sponsor, Come As You Are. They're an amazing uh, digital store that caters and talks about sexuality and disability like no other and uh, they're just great and so I appreciate that they are one of the sponsors for the podcast. I also want to thank anyone who pledges to my Patreon page and puts their hard-earned money towards this show and towards the work I do to create this show. I really, really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. Also, to anybody who's created an ad for me, you're awesome. I'd like to 
extend that offer to anybody listening. If you want to create a little ad saying why you like the show, what the show has meant for you, I'd love to run that in in these ad breaks so that we can hear the impact and the importance of the show for you. Okay, now let's get back to the show. Thanks so much. When I was Googling around looking for case studies and cases to talk about in relation to sex, disability, and the law, I found a few that I really wanted to hone in on and really wanted to talk about and really wanted to bring forward for this this particular episode. So we're going to do that now. One of the first ones that I discovered when I typed it into Google was there's a man with Down syndrome in Britain who won compensation after being told by the courts that he couldn't have sex with his wife. The court decided that he didn't have the mental capacity to consent to sex and that he had to take consent classes in order to engage in sex with his wife. Now, right away, he's married to somebody, so doesn't that, doesn't that, doesn't that imply that he can understand consent? Doesn't he understand that he's married to somebody? And doesn't he, wouldn't he understand the difference between, yes, I consent, and no, I don't consent? The court was concerned that by having sex with him, his wife could be in legal trouble and they were concerned they they wanted to make sure he understood what was happening when he had sex with his wife when i read this initially and i've been looking at this case just a little snippet that i found in the news cuz i couldn't find any, anything bigger than that i kept reading it over and over and i just was being just disgusted by by how little care the court system had for this this man and for his marriage and for how he might be feeling to have to take consent classes to really understand how to say yes or no to sex and he's a he's grown he's a grown up and well he may have down syndrome which presents varying issues for somebody living with that I've I have not worked specifically with individuals with down syndrome so I don't want to speak too much on that because I'm certainly not an expert if anybody living with Down syndrome wants to come on the podcast and talk to me about sexuality and disability for them, I'd love to speak with you so we can all become a little more enlightened. And I, But I just feel like the court was so so obtusely ableist in, in, in its ruling, initially saying that he couldn't have sex. And then the only reason that he, that he won compensation is because the court provided damages because the court didn't fail to, the court that that said you have to have these classes failed to provide the classes for him what what so we can understand then that the overarching beliefs about sexuality and disability haven't changed by him being awarded damages the man was granted the right to, and got money for it to have sex with his wife because the court failed on a technicality it doesn't mean they don't it doesn't mean their thinking has changed it doesn't mean they actually believe that he should have sex they just failed to do their job and so he won damages isn't it comforting to know that the only way that this person could access sex with his wife and get money for being so humiliated is because the court 
the the court that that Im- that imposed a sanction forgot to impose it and was like, "Oops." And so now we have to like why even put anybody through this? It's so ridiculous and so demeaning. This is proof that our legal system has no idea how to deal with the law with respect to disability and this a ruling like this flies in the face that we all have equal legal rights and that we are in any way equal under the law. Um, it certainly it's, I'm sure it certainly didn't feel that way to this gentleman who was just trying to have sex with his wife. It blatantly undermines the autonomy of the individual with Down syndrome as well as his wife. And it's just degrading and it's just gross and I just don't understand why the state is so hell-bent on denying disabled people the rights to their bodies. And it's just, it, it, it's scary and it's, it's, it needs to stop. In doing research for this episode, I looked up a case that I had seen on my news feed a couple years ago. Um, and, and last year as well. And I really wanted to delve more into it because I had seen this case kind of all over disabled people's news feeds. But I didn't really know anything about it and I wasn't paying attention and it didn't make any sense to me until I started looking into it for this podcast. I've been listening to, sidebar, I've been listening to a lot of the awesome podcasts, Sword and Scale, recently. In fact, I've been binging all their episodes. So if if the people from Sword and Scale are listening to me, which you probably aren't, but if you are, your podcast is awesome and I, I want to move all my podcast listeners anybody who likes true crime this podcast will like shock you you'll be up till three in the morning listening to this podcast anyway the this sword and scale was kind of the inspiration for me looking so deeply into this case this case that i had seen on disabled people's news feed was the case of anna stubblefield And some of you may be familiar with that name and some of you won't. So let me give you some brief background. In October 2015, a New Jersey court sentenced Anna Stubblefield, a former Rutgers University professor of ethics, on two counts of aggravated sexual assault of a man with with cerebral palsy who was nonverbal. The court surmised that he did not have the intellect or proper capacity to consent to sexual activity. The court held that Stubblefield raped him. Now, based on that two-line synopsis, you might think that's true. Of course, when I looked into this case further, it was far more complicated and complex than a simple summary might suggest. Let's go back here a little. Stubblefield was, according to the New York Times report that I, that I, that I found a really good synopsis of this case on was considered a champion of people with disabilities for years in her work. When I initially read that language, I cringed. I really cringed. I was like, oh no. Right away, I was like, oh no. And I started to possibly consider the fact that she may have raped him just from the way that it was that it was presented via, via the New York Times. Um, Stubblefield was tasked with helping DJ, the name of the alleged victim, speak through what he is what is known as facilitated communication. 
Now, before we go any further, I want to talk to you, to you about facilitated communication and what that is. And I put a star beside that in my notes so I could read that because so I could read about that more thoroughly with you. So let's do that now. Facilitated communication, or FC, is a technique in which physical communication and emotional support is provided by a facilitator to an individual with a communication disorder. With assistance, the communicator points to symbols such as letters, pictures, and or objects. I'm piecing together a definition here. I'm grabbing this from Wikipedia, which I know isn't the most credible source, but there are credible notations at the bottom here so it is it does seem kind of credible and what i'm reading makes sense it says that in addition to providing physical support needed for typing or pointing the facilitator provides verbal prompts and moral support in addition to human touch assistance the facility the facilitator's belief in their communication partner's ability to communicate seems to be a key component of the technique there is widespread agreement within the scientific community and multiple disability advocacy organizations that facilitators, not the person with the communication disability, are the source of all or most messages obtained through FC. By guiding the arm of the patient towards answers they expect to see or that form intelligible language. Alternatively, the facilitator may hold the alphabet board and move it towards the disabled person's finger. So yeah, it seems a little bit fishy there. It seems like it's not necessarily the person with a disability saying what they want and actually communicating. It might just be another form of ableism where the disabled person is getting the disabled person to do something super great. And so it's been widely, widely discredited. What I meant to say there was... It might just be a case of the non-disabled person getting the disabled person to do something great. I didn't mean to imply that the disabled person would get another disabled person to do something super great. Just so we're clear. Both Anna and DJ's family saw marked improvement in his communication skills upon using this facilitated communication method. And initially, everybody was really excited by this for him and really, really, really happy to see that he was moving along. And then what happened was that <clears throat> Stubblefield eventually began enrolling DJ in college classes and even the conference circuit in Rutgers University. I'll readily admit to you that when I read this part of the, the article, I was even more suspicious of Anna. I was like, oh, okay. Somebody who has never been in a classroom setting like that, never really done things like that, would all of a sudden be on the conference circuit. And that's not... Now, when, and I was conflicted by thinking about that when I was thinking about it because I was like, well, that's just me being internally ableist towards this individual. But it... When I looked at facilitated communication and what it and how it was discredited almost by everyone, it really made me think of of Anna as possibly a predator. I'm not sure how I feel about any of that still. So the case continues that eventually DJ made known to Anna via facilitated communication that he had feelings for her 
and she too admitted that she had feelings for him. The family became increasingly concerned and attempted to stop contact between the two of them. Anna Stubblefield came over to their home one day, and when the family was not in the room with her or DJ, she had, I think, sex or oral sex with him. In watching YouTube clips of Stubblefield, she's well-read, manicured, and professional. She certainly doesn't look like the type of person who would engage in sexual assault. That's not to say that there's a certain typology of sexual of people who commit sexual assault, but it's just striking to see her on the video to see how poised she is and how she talks so readily about the linkages between disability and race and class that when you think about it, she just doesn't look like the type who would do that. So it was just, when I watched her YouTube video of, of her at a conference prior to all this, she didn't look at all like the type to engage in this kind of conduct. But again, that means nothing because we all know sexual assault. People who commit sexual assault don't look a certain way. They can be anybody. One of the things that struck me with the court system in this case, the courts didn't allow, didn't let the jury see the evidence that facilitated communication between DJ and Anna could work. But they did allow the jury to see DJ in his chair in his mute, spastic condition. When I read that, initially I was like, whoa, whoa, you're totally painting him in a different light. You're suggesting, as anybody with a physical disability will tell you, especially those of us who are wheelchair users, people automatically assume that if you're a wheelchair user, you must also have a cognitive impairment. So to sway the jury in this way and to show them this and not show them other parts of possibilities that could show that the the person in question could also communicate in different ways sends a really large message to society around how we view people with disabilities taking agency over their bodies and their sexuality because it is possible even though facilitated communication is widely discredited it is highly possible that DJ did want to have a relationship with this Anna Stubblefield and she helped facilitate that with him through their conversations. That is very, very possible. Now, it seems suspect, but we can't, we can't assume that it wasn't possible. And we can't assume that he, as a disabled man, didn't make the choice to say, yes, I want to engage in a sexual relationship with you. And, I mean, I, I find the way that Anna went about it, in looking at this case, kind of problematic, and it, she she does seem kind of suspect to me in a lot of other ways, and kind of feel the way she's painted in these articles to me feels super ableist, and I don't know if I if I support her at all, but I do I don't I don't definitely support the court's painting of this picture in a certain way. We could look at this case in one of two ways. We can all agree that Anna Stubblefield is indeed a sexual predator, as the courts did decide. Or we could agree, we could understand that she did she happened to fall in love with somebody with a disability who has speech impairments and communicates in a different way, and she was simply trying to facilitate their love together. That is another way to look at all this, and I think the courts need to, and I think the way we look at the law 
disability and sexuality, especially around consent, we need to look at it in a different way and we need to understand that people who who communicate differently can still consent and can still decide yes or no and can still make choices on their autonomy. And people with varying degrees of disability have have the option to say yes or no. And the courts, I think the courts are afraid to consider that. I think they are, they are living in this world where ableism is much easier to say, oh no, that person, if that person gets hurt, then there are, be, there are other problems that will occur and it's much safer to simply deny them their rights than to look at ways to, to create rights that actually work for them and create laws that actually work for them around disability, around what their disabilities are. I think our court systems have a lot of work to do and I think we are upholding the ugly laws and eugenic laws, whether we want to believe it or not. These are laws that are coming out in the in the decisions that we hand down about sexuality and disability and consent. These are viewpoints that haven't gone away and are culturally embedded in the way the law sees disability and sexuality. Just a brief end to the Stubblefield case. Anna Stubblefield was eventually sentenced to 12 years in jail. 12 years. In stark contrast, rapist Brock Turner was only sentenced to six months in jail and then three years probation for his crime. Also, the court awarded the family of DJ in a civil suit some money for what happened. And the, the article that I'm reading says they won $4 million by another New Jersey court in a civil suit. Now, the problem with this is that did, did Stubblefield harm DJ? Really? It's difficult to say. And if so, did she harm the family? Do we know then that if DJ wanted the civil suit to go forward, one could also understand that maybe the family needs money because of disability. There are so many issues here and so many things to go with this case. But overall, the courts and our legal system, the legal, legal systems all over the world have a lot of work to do in looking at sexuality and disability more thoroughly. And I hope that this podcast is just a little glimpse of the, of the stuff we should be talking about around consent. And it was a really interesting and fun podcast to put together and I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, read my blogs or book me to bring disability to you, head over to www.andrewgerza.com. Also, if you're listening to this in iTunes, please rate and review us so more people can find the show. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Just a brief production note. Disability After Dark is now going every two weeks, every other Monday at 5 a.m. So you won't hear us next Monday, but you'll be able to download a new episode every two weeks, Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations.
Any and all materials, including graphics, music, and audio recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission.